This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are uh, George Day and Greg Shea uh, f- uh, on the faculty at Wharton. And uh, we're going to talk with them about what role talent plays in driving growth. Uh, George and Greg, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, well, I'd, maybe a good place to start might be, you know, how did the two of you uh, get to collaborate on this on this topic? How, what, what, what inspired that? Well, it's a, it's a fun story because Greg and I have been friends for many years, um, sharing a number of diverse interests. But one day we were having a conversation about uh, my work on <coughs> the, the drivers of innovation and uh, he meshed that with his uh, uh, work systems model, and we discovered it was a very happy and productive and insightful marriage. Uh, and that led to a lot of collaboration, a lot of thinking, uh, where I took the uh, research that I had, uh, which we'll talk about shortly, and meshed it with his work systems model of organizational change. So, uh, and one of the uh, one of the uh, I think uh, enjoyable pieces about that, in addition to working with George, was intellectually. It's always good when you find uh, a piece of work that uh, comes from a very different angle. That the two pieces of work actually are complementary and uh, would argue in the same direction. So there's a certain kind of validation that exists as as, as a result of that, which is always pleasant to find. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, the uh, as we said in the beginning, uh, the the to- topic I was hoping we could speak about today is the role that talent plays in driving growth. And it seems to me that when we compare companies that are you know growth drivers uh, and, and and very successful in this regard, compared to others that are uh, you know growth laggards and not growth leaders. Uh, what role does talent play in, in, in making the difference between the two? Right. Uh, George, could you have any thoughts on that? Well, let me take a running start at it uh, because uh, I'll uh, get to the point where I can transition over to Greg's work. But I began by asking uh, a simple question. What is it that most distinguishes Growth, organic growth leaders, and I want to emphasize organic, that is growth that uh, is generated with your own resources. And uh, how does that, what distinguishes the average performer from the growth laggard? Now, my interest in this question was driven principally by the fact that uh, innovation is the overarching idea behind growth leadership uh, and that If we stand all the way back and look at company performance, there are really only two things that drive the stock price of a company in a a publicly traded uh, environment, and that is uh, their current profitability and their prospects or, if you like, the expectations for future growth. That's why organic growth is at the top of most CEOs' Uh, agenda or very close to the top. So then I, uh, uh, over a period of about six years, 
funded uh, extensively by the Mack Institute here at Wharton, uh, began to explore the question of what is it that distinguishes growth leaders from growth laggards and average performers. Um, and uh, we tested uh, with 182 senior executives who had high visibility on uh, the culture, the capabilities, and the uh, results in their companies. Uh, so we uh, – it took six years to collect the, all that data and uh, we were testing 18 hypotheses that were in the literature, um, everything from uh, open innovation to uh, networking to outside-in thinking. All of these had been, uh, by various gurus, uh, asserted as the key to unlocking organic growth. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I had this extensive uh, instrument that we personally administered to these 182 uh, leaders uh, of innovation in their organizations. And uh, after we started analyzing the data, one variable popped out well ahead of all the others, and that was uh, investments in retaining, uh, developing, and, of course, acquiring innovation talent. Um, and, and this is a signal, if you like, of uh, leadership commitment to innovation. So um, everything else uh, kind of got subsumed under that talent umbrella. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was describing this to Greg, and I said, you know, I've, I've tested all of these, what we came to call levers of how you improve performance based upon these distinguishing attributes, particularly the, the uh, investment in talent one. And uh, that's where it meshed so beautifully with his work systems model. So, so uh, Greg, how, how did it mesh with the work systems model? And could you explain to our audience what the work systems model is and how what George just described fit into that? So there are two uh, basic parts of the model. We'll talk about the second one, which is <clears throat> once you've come up with a, a concrete conceptualization, which for us is the use of narrative, uh, that you want to try to create or the realities you're trying to create. And whether that's by strategy or we label it as a, a change initiative, uh, there are eight aspects of uh, that I use, basically comes out of socio-technical theory, systems theory, uh, that are eight aspects of uh, what comprise the work environment. So things like measurement and rewards and information distribution. Uh, one of the – and the point would be that the – those aspects actually drive behavior in the workplace. <coughs> um, one of the things that's uh, – having done this for quite a while, there's an ebb and a flow on how much we attribute to individual actors and how much we put into the system – I think we're probably at a time where there's uh, m more attention to individuals than there is to the design of systems. I'm sure we'll go back. But uh, this pulling forward of, of these notions of thinking about systems and then trying to make the model accessible. So when we one of the one of the aspects uh, is what we call people uh, aspect, which includes uh, skills and motivation, orient orientation of, of, of people. 
So it's clearly very important, and yet at the same time, uh, one thing we've learned, we're at least 60 or 70 years into being clear about this, uh, is that uh, situation has a lot to do with what you see from individuals. So it's both, uh, it's a combination of what are the attributes that the individual brings in as well as what the system uh, has to play. So uh, the talent aspect of this is clearly important, Mm -hmm. but it can be squandered very easily by by not building the other pieces that you need in order to make good use of A, to attract, B, to then leverage, and then C, to retain. And they include uh, how do you go about setting up the organization? How do you set up measurement systems? What are the things you're rewarding? Who gets to decide what? What are the information systems? As examples of, yes, it's the talent, but it's the talent in combination with the way the organization is, is, uh, is set up. Right, right. Now, George, going back to what you said about uh, the importance of innovation talent, what exactly is innovation talent and, and how do you go about finding, finding it, finding these people? Um, so let me uh, put it in a broader context and uh, perhaps build on uh, Greg's system uh, to, to continue on with how we came to work together uh, because a key part of the work systems model is understanding the narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's where talent uh, becomes extremely important. But uh, uh, then I realized that my work on innovation and driving faster growth using innovation uh, fit his model through the narrative part. And uh, so as I went back to these companies – we discovered there are broadly two flavors of uh, innovation narratives. One was growth-affirming, and uh, that would be things like the, the, the stories people tell about innovation. Uh, for example, if you want to get ahead, build a new business. Um, we aim to hire people who don't need support and then support them. Mm-hmm. Um, that puts talent front and center in the stories that people tell about uh, innovation and, uh, and our organic growth. Everybody knows our growth strategy. Well-intentioned failures are learning opportunities mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, by contrast, a growth-denying uh, narrative, which we find all too frequently, sounds like, oh, immediate needs soak up all of our innovation resources. We're constantly scrambling to uh, meet a a customer demand or match a competitor. Uh, We start with what's possible with our technology, Mm -hmm. not with what our customers want. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no carrots, only sticks around here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. When when it comes to innovation, uh, we add initiatives to our operating responsibilities. I mean, that's a story. You can see these kinds of uh, impromptu, um, if you feel like, dialogues are totally subverting innovation. Well, what uh, struck us in the uh, growth-affirming narratives was the central role of talent. Now, uh, this had, it it turns out, as we unpeel this uh, uh, concept, there's talent, uh, and, and the reason why talent is so important is, um, and, and investments in talent, is firstly, it's a signal that top management, leadership, is really committed to innovation and driving growth. Uh, 
so a lot of signaling value. But uh, the one that is perhaps even more obvious that uh, innovation talent is hugely influential in the success of your innovation initiatives. Um, I was just with a software company yesterday, mm -hmm. and uh, I tested a proposition which is close to this, and that is that uh, a good software development, a really talented one, is 10 times as productive mm -hmm. as an average. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is true in the innovation space. So when we talk about innovation talent, we're really talking about the uh, pr program managers, the uh, product development leaders, uh, those are the people that make uh, the uh, magic happen. So, Greg, uh, if, if you need these talented individuals to make magic happen, uh, what sort of a system do you need around these individuals so that their impact can be maximized? So just to move backwards for a moment, uh, those individuals will be hard to find right. and harder to retain uh, if, upon inspection, they don't find the kinds of supports we're about to talk about, right? Uh, so it's not simply you come and we'll work it out. Very few people who are particularly good at this are going to buy that that is an adequate sign of support. And senior senior people can talk all they want about I'm committed, but it's show me. Right. So let's just take an example, um, uh, building on what, what uh, George had said. Are, are there clear protocols in place that allow one to, to, to have the seed money and the seed resources to start an innovative project? And is it managed in a way that allows quick failure, fast learning? Uh, is uh, nobody wants to fail, but when there's failure, does it get debriefed so learning occurs in the organization? If there's success, do you debrief to try to improve as well? Debriefing shouldn't be some kind of a code word for we only do it when we fail. No, you, you want to secure the ways that you succeed as well as to, to check uh, those times when you fail. And if you did succeed, part of the, that development and ongoing refinement of protocol is when were we just lucky? Because if you were lucky, that's probably not reproducible, right? So where were we actually lucky? So we have to go back and fix that. So are they committed to, to getting uh, the protocols to get things started? Uh, are resources available? Uh, is there ongoing learning, which shows that the organization is committed to this? Uh, just on the measurement side... <clears throat> What happens in terms of uh, people who take the lead uh, in innovative pro projects? Uh, how are they measured? What, what happens in rewards? Uh, do you reward, uh, back to what George is talking about, in terms of ongoing functions, or do you reward based on innovative prowess? Well, that's a basic decision that an organization makes. Uh, who gets to see what's happening or not happening in terms of innovation, right? How fast and how expedited is the decision-making around these choices? So I've touched on about four or five of the aspects that would be in the model. Um, and one might add, like or in organization, for example, are, are the resources that are available to people that are built into the organization that are easily accessible uh, or not? Or do you have to always scrounge and always look for something. How easy do you make it for people to do that? So those would all be examples of making it easier for talent. Back to the quote uh, that George had from Google, which is just, it, it sums the whole thing, which is, 
you know, we hire people who don't need support and then we support them. It's not an either or issue. It's a both and issue. So uh, one question that came to mind as both of you were speaking is uh, when you are looking for talent, where do you find it? Do you look within your own organization or do you go outside or a combination of both? What, Uh, what, what, uh, What did your study show? That's easy. Both. Um, but um, uh, I'm going to start with the inside part. Um, and, and, and what we find often is that uh, the talent is within the organization somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the question is, how do you identify it? Remember, talent uh, is, is about uh, getting them in place, uh, developing them, and then uh, importantly, and perhaps in this era of a war for talent, we got to retain them. Uh, but uh, back to the inside talent, uh, we, we've worked with a number of companies on the uh, competencies of uh, innovation talent. And uh, so I'm going to describe our process because I think your uh, listeners and readers w- could adapt this pretty quickly. Um, the approach we used was to take the very best innovation talent within a company mm-hmm. and say um, and, and, and get, by the way, uh, consensus around the 10 or 12 best innovation leaders, group product managers, uh, uh, development leaders, and so forth, and uh, ask them two questions in a critical incident interview, and that is, what was your biggest success and what was your biggest failure? Mm-hmm. Now, innovative people can talk for hours on both those questions. <laughs> and uh, what, what we can learn from innovation failures is that, A, these people learn a lot from a failure. Uh, or what I would probably prefer to say is a disappointment. Uh, it didn't work out quite as we had hoped, but we learned a lot. And so these uh, innovation leaders, as we interviewed them, uh, kept coming back to the uh, basic uh, competencies in which we sorted into those that are hard to develop and that you have to select in and those that are easier to develop and that's where we do do the training. For example, uh, a hard-to-develop skill and it actually makes no sense to try to develop it is conceptual thinking or end user needs focus or enthusiasm for practical innovation. These are all examples of the kinds of competencies we revealed through the uh, analysis of the uh, stories that people told about their greatest success and greatest failure. Um, And and, and for example, I, I still remember listening to a very successful uh, innovation team leader who was uh, being interviewed, and he described his project and how he was relentless in communicating why this project was so important to the future of the company. Um, And he was a, um, a superb conceptual thinker. That is, he could see his project um, in a much broader context. And he wasn't shy about selling it up. Um, and uh, long story short, 
He is now a senior vice president uh, because of that. Um, a, he captured a lot of attention. He got a lot of support. And uh, then uh, he built on those competencies to rise much higher because I would argue that innovation leaders are the ultimate general managers. And so it's a great training ground for senior leadership. Uh, just to complete the, uh, the, 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 the approach is there's a lot of things that we can develop after the fact, uh, like technical product knowledge or uh, how do you go about collecting information in this domain or presentation skills um, um, and financial analysis. But uh, basically, uh, to come back to your question, we start by looking around inside with people that demonstrate these capabilities, have a successful track record, mm -hmm. and then uh, nurture them. Um, and then and only then do we uh, go outside to seek talent. Um, and uh, it, it's seldom that a company that is really successful uh, will uh, take on someone just because they apply. It's more likely to be, we're going to go and look at the whole territory of innovation talent in our domain, software, biosciences, and so forth, and figure out who the best people are. Yeah. And that's who we're going to go after. Now, an organic growth leader can do that, um, whereas uh, a company that's struggling doesn't have much to offer an outside person who's already very successful. Uh, thank you, George. Uh, uh, Greg, the, uh, I think some of these ideas that we're talking about might be easy to get our minds around by taking examples of specific companies that are particularly good at this. So do you, do you have any examples of companies that are able to nurture talent, innovation talent, as George was just saying, yeah. but also have the systems in place that, that allow these leaders to thrive? Yes, let me na name a couple and maybe go into one with a little bit of ex uh, explanation. The, the one piece that I would add to what George had said is that uh, part of what you're looking for is, is a passion uh, and curiosity, uh, which is very hard to, to, to program in after the fact. Uh, so, uh, and, and I put those two things together, and it needn't be an extroverted jumping up and down kind of passion, but you see, uh, and again, through, through conversation, through the vetting process, this is somebody who really likes to do this work. And so much of innovation ends up being about being curious, Right. So the idea may not come from a particular path. It comes from uh, serendipity or it comes from another industry. And so that notion of ongoing curiosity, which then often is linked to something else, which is networking. So people spend a, a lot of time in what uh, Hirschberg would describe as being a creative abrasion. So they, they like being in settings when they're scraping up against other people who are in a domain in the broadest sense that are thinking like like they're thinking that that requires a particular uh, a particular kind of patience and acceptance by the part of people who are running an organization because these are not necessarily the people who are going to be who you would hire if you're trying to 
squeeze the last couple of drams of energy out of a particular line of a product or serve. That's not who they are, right? Um, <clears throat> so um, in terms of types of industries, uh, I think if you, if you looked in terms of the standards, you'd think in terms of Gore or you'd think in terms of Google, um, uh, you'd think in terms of 3M, places that have uh, sustained operations, which, which really come from having continually invested in everything from you know, the ability to form informal groups and the ability to work across silos and uh, break those down. Uh, and I think in many ways to, to keep the passion and curiosity alive for folks. Uh, if we take here in Philadelphia, part of this transition in, in an attempt to create an innovative organization, if we take a look uh, to the other side of the river here to a place like Jefferson where – um, you know, Steve Clasco, uh, uh, Dr. Clasco came in to be the, the head of Jefferson. He, he, one thing he clearly is in love with and he carries a deep passion for himself is this notion of being innovative, of, of trying to not just in the delivery of what you have, but of trying to look into the future and say, what might it be? Where might we go? And so the types of things that he started to do are, I think, representative of the kinds of things that are actions that people who are trying to get the systems established. So what does he do? He, he includes in his own reward structure a significant piece that has to do with innovation or revenue from, from sources other than currently exist. Creates a department for innovation to try to provide resources to the organization. Uh, starts expanding the measurement rewards to other people in the organization for, uh, for, that, uh, for that type of activity. Uh, puts in place a thing called a hackathon, which is uh, trying to create, do problem solving around multiple kinds of, of challenges and opportunities and doesn't make that just for Jefferson. He actually makes it a North American event, right? So part of this creative abrasion, we've got people coming in from, from many different places. Those are organizational uh, they include rewards, they include measurement. You work on the information to try to measure new revenue streams, uh, the flow of ideas in, uh, hiring people to staff those places as well as promoting people from inside. So those would all be, uh, I think, still developing there, but would be clear efforts to institutionalize something that an individual brought in with clear support from the board uh, but but it's not just about him even as CEO, but rather about building it in in these these various ways inside the organization to attempt to turn the ship. And uh, just to uh, to build on that, uh, because I have uh, admired what uh, Steve Glasgow has done with Jefferson, and uh, just to underline Greg's point, there's no ambiguity throughout Jefferson about his commitment to innovation, mm. uh, thinking differently, taking risks. I mean, mm. you are going to fail. I mean, we have lots of data on the rate of disappointment uh, with innovation initiatives. Right. But uh, you want to be able to uh, take those risks, contain the damage, and then learn fast. And uh, so uh, – this goes back to the talent side of it uh, that we've been focusing on here. There's no doubt in the organization uh, that there is a commitment by leadership to innovation. 
And that is manifested through an uh, incredible amount of energy being devoted to getting the best people, uh, developing them, and then retaining them. Uh, because once you've got someone who's really successful, everybody else is going to be trying to hire them away. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, fortunately, if you're a growth leader, uh, you have a great story to tell your best people. And why would they want to go to someone that's struggling? Uh, because uh, a struggling growth laggard, in my terms, uh, is struggling because they don't have a narrative in place. The incentives are misaligned, probably uh, uh, for, for innovation purposes, very short-term uh cost-oriented, um, and uh, efficiency-directed. Uh, and, and, and so when you have that kind of an environment, it's not appealing to the best people. They want to go with winners because that gives them a lot of runway. So just to highlight this, we've, we've said it a couple times in different ways. Often when you look at the current management literature, there's a big emphasis on commitment and on communication, which I wouldn't argue with. What often isn't in there is that people day-to-day pay much more attention, I'd argue, to the eight aspects Mm -hmm. that we talk about in the work systems model than to the words that come out of of leadership. So if I simply say that innovation is important versus start creating structural uh, encouragement, um, bringing in the people, uh, bringing building the protocols, coming up with sharing the information about best practices and doing this. I don't start working multiple of those aspects. People will soon not believe the words that I'm speaking, however uh, animated I am when I speak them. So if it's not built into the system, uh, it will soon lose credibility. So how does one communicate commitment? Uh, coming out of the, the work systems model, it would be build the work systems that indicate the commitment to the narratives you're trying to have yeah. unfold inside the organization. Right. One, one, again, a question that came to mind as both of you were speaking. If you are focused on finding innovative individuals and talented individuals and putting them into situations where they can succeed. Is it easier to do this in a startup or in a large established company? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and where are these individuals likely to have the most impact? Hmm. Uh, that's an intriguing question uh, because many of the uh, startup people I know uh, were frustrated in big companies and uh, had an idea that the big company either wasn't energized or didn't seize as part of their uh, growth path forward. And so they take off and set up their own company. Now, one could argue that those are exactly the people you'd want to keep in, 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 in uh, and, and develop within your own organization. So... Um, That's why growth laggers and average performers that are very much focused on short-term performance tend not to be able to keep their innovation talent. They want to go off and start their own business. 
Now, there's a lot of other reasons why uh, people have this entrepreneurial a- urge. They want to be their own boss. They have a vision that's, um, that's compelling. They want to transform an industry. Uh, but many of those in growth-leading companies stay and they grow with the uh, – because they're, they're given a lot of latitude to grow. And, and uh, Greg mentioned W. O. Gorin Associates. Um, that's a company that has less than 2 percent turnover mm-hmm. in its senior management ranks, mm-hmm. um, right down to the product specialist level. And the reason is that an innovative person with an idea – will be able to sell it within the company. And uh, I've been working with them for 20 years. And I just love the company. And I hear this story year after year after year. I had this burning idea, and I was able to persuade two or three others that it was a good idea. Leadership gave me the uh, seed money to get started, and uh, I ran with it within our structure. Uh, and And... So it, it it comes back to your 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 question prompts uh, about startup uh, prompts the question well why do people stay with large companies rather than go to startups because you set the environment the work system in place you give them the resources and you reward them with all sorts of recognition and it's an exciting place to be uh, just. Finally, to complete the thought, within uh, Gore, the narrative is all about innovation. Um, I have uh, been in many, many uh, conversations with people, and I'd say within five minutes on average, we're talking about new business models, innovative applications of their material science, new opportunities. It's just hardwired into the culture and therefore into the narrative. To the flip side uh, of your question would be what happens to people who go out to set the, up those organizations? We, we know that most of them fail. Um, and one of, the, one of the big reasons that they fail is exactly the flip side of this, which is they don't know how to build the organization to support the idea that they had in the first instance, right? So if the established organization doesn't know how to support the ideas that would be innovative, the innovative idea, then whoever owns that has the problem of how do I build the organization? And so many fail uh, in that transition period, right? So uh, the problem, it's, it's two sides of the, same, of the same coin, which is the problem of how do you do both, right? How do you end up with talent, and as George is saying, and it's supported, whether you're doing it as a startup, uh, and so how do I build the support as we grow, or how do I do it in an existing organization so that the, the people who are innovative feel supportive, but I need the talent and I need the support systems around them. Yeah. Now, these ideas that we are talking about, do you find that they apply only to the corporate world or do you think they could also apply in other contexts, say like in a nonprofit? Uh, do you, uh, George, do you have any uh, well, thoughts uh, on... Well, Greg has already mentioned uh, Jefferson right. as, um, a, as a uh, real um, uh, growth leader in the hospital space. Um, 
I would call out uh, as another example of a highly innovative organization, um, and that is the Philadelphia Zoo. Um, what makes it so innovative? Well, it, uh, it, it, it's got a couple of interesting aspects. Um, firstly, it's been recognized by its peers as highly innovative. We win at least uh, – I, I should identify that I'm on the board and I'm really getting uh, – hey, I'm having a hell of a lot of fun, excuse me, uh, but uh, – I'm also enjoying learning about the organization. Uh, so it's, it's recognized for innovation uh, by its peers. Um, as an example, we have what was called Zoo 360, which is the first above-ground trails for animals lacing its way through the zoo. Uh, and it's quite marvelous to uh, be walking along and then look up and see two leopards above you, five feet above. Um, Fortunately enclosed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that is an exciting innovation. But it it, it pervades every part of the organization. Um, I was talking with our, uh, one of our, junior IT people. And uh, what struck me is that uh, he was experimenting with a lot of different software apps. And I said, well, why are you doing this? Um, Is is this under direction? No, no, no. I I just, I think it's something we could do. Um, And um, it, it comes back to an interesting observation about culture. When you're in a culture you don't appreciate it. Um, and I don't think uh, the Philadelphia Zoo fully appreciates just how innovative it is. And so one of my um, uh, exciting uh, opportunities is to try to explicate and explain and uh, diagnose the innovation culture and the uh, powerful innovation narrative that pervades the whole organization, starting with the leadership. Um, and it's an exciting story that is not well known in the Philadelphia community, uh, but it is absolutely well known among other zoos. So a couple of things. I guess working backwards from what George was talking about, Part of the struggle in trying to create uh, a culture that's supportive of this is the word culture. Mm-hmm. So it end, culture ends up being a kind of gelatinous term that covers a whole bunch of things um, and not as precisely as George was, uh, was laying out. And in the end, culture ends up being uh, about patterns of behavior and what lies behind those behaviors. And part of our work here is to lay out how do you drive behavior in a consistent fashion uh, if you do that, then you end up creating a culture. So culture both influences behavior, but behavior in many ways ends up defining culture. So we're entering this, what can be a confusing and not very precise arena of culture in a quite a precise way by saying these are the aspects that drive behavior, which will then lead lead to, uh, lead to change in culture. In terms of uh, uh, NGOs and other types of not-for-profits, uh, um, I think certainly healthcare is an example of, particularly in the healthcare provider space. So, 
that's a space that's both under assault uh, in terms of the way we think about its compensation, and that's been changing. But it's also for-profits nibble at the edges of, of uh, and trying to figure out how to peel off what's, in, so what's inside of it. So uh, the providers are, um, uh, I think there are, are good examples. We use Jefferson. There are others um, where uh, the organizations, uh, Christiana in, in, uh, in Delaware, is very consciously pursuing alternative revenue streams that are in the provider space. And, and because the mainstreams are likely to just under increasingly uh, vice-like, uh, vice-like pressures. Um, <clears throat> I worked uh, with uh, an international uh, um, women's health organization uh, earlier this year, and that would be another example. We were in talking really about the work systems model and trying to apply it because the nature of change across the world in terms of both uh, uh, progressive uh, uh, attention to women's health and also, frankly, regressive uh, uh, attention to, to or non-attention uh, to women's health puts tremendous pressure on that organization. So uh, as they were wrestling with what one could easily find in a for-profit organization, which is how much should we, how much should we turn over to the locale? How much, because of the wide range of what, what we're facing, uh, how much do we turn over to, to the local uh, uh, outreaches that we have around the planet? Uh, and how best to support the variety that will occur as a result of that. So that's innovation in the sense of providing very basic, uh, um, particularly in the second and third world, uh, types of care for people in very different settings, which if you were selling the product, uh, you wouldn't have trouble relating to the challenge. Uh, And yet this is a not-for-profit that's attempting to, to do that work and trying to think about how do we drive the kinds of behavior, including the kind of uh, client or patient focus that we want, which will look so different if one is working in, uh, say, South Asia than if one is working in Latin America or South America versus if one was working in sub-Saharan uh, Africa. Now, as we sort of uh, bring this to uh, 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 some sort of uh, a con- conclusion, uh, would you uh, have any advice for uh, company CEOs and leaders that would like to attract uh, innovative talent to their organizations and use that as a way to drive growth. What, what would you recommend that they should do? Well, just uh, a, a, a summary observation <clears throat> is that uh, by leadership um, focusing on innovation – they do it, they signal to the organization, and it's, it's all a signaling question. They signal how important it is by the amount of time they spend on recruiting, developing, and retaining people. Um, the very best, fast-growing companies have literally a war room on innovation talent. That is where they uh, keep all the dossiers on the people they want to uh, retain, um, and the, the, these are the high pots, high potentials, uh, and the people they'd like to recruit uh, because they see um, out in the future they're going to need that kind of capability. And then they invest a lot, and um, I, I'd say 
the, the kind of program that uh, Greg uh, designs is successful within growth leading companies because the CEO and the leadership team is actively involved in the design and even in the delivery um, of, of the program. They're there. And that's a powerful signal uh, as well as a commitment of resources and time and energy. So it's about how you allocate the scarce attention. Great. So I, I guess two things. One is I want to make sure, uh, since we are at the University of Pennsylvania, that I do note that the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> should be included in the set of people who have made structural commitments to, to innovation. I do want to be able to cross Bruce Street and see my physician in the future. So I want to make sure that I mention that. So they have, they've made a variety of commitments, including implementation centers, uh, et cetera. Um, so uh, I think one of the key parts uh, to your to your answering your question, McCool, would be that uh, it it's uh, that leaders especially should check the way that they go about attributing what happens in the organization. Uh, it, if they view it simply as about talent, we got the wrong people, I got the wrong people on the bus, whatever image one wants to use, uh, they're they're probably not spending enough time doing one of two things. Uh, one is thinking about, well, how would I design this place, uh, back to the work systems model and the aspects uh, represented in that, to, to drive the kind of behavior that I want. So let's not just put it on the individuals. It is, after all, my organization, so how have I designed it, right? So that's, uh, that's one piece. Um, and then I would suggest that the other piece would be the way they think about their own actions and thinking in terms of innovation. So uh, it's very easy to attribute uh, what leads to innovation or not to other factors, particularly to other people. But if one wants to take a look at what am I doing and particularly what am I doing or not doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis trying to construct an environment here uh, that that supports, that encourages and supports innovation. Uh, so that's hard work for any leader. Uh, the further up one goes, the less one has to do that, right? The less, um, uh, the less that one is attentive to an accurate picture of one's own actions. And so I would su suggest that, that people think about their own attribution, have people uh, question their assumptions, and particularly think about how do I design this, this uh, whether it's a, a department or a business unit or the organization as a whole, to, to drive the kinds of things that we've been talking about. George, uh, Greg, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton about this very important topic. Really appreciate your being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, McCool. Uh, just as a uh, concluding comment, uh, you began by asking, how did we come to collaborate? Yes. Now, uh, I'd just like to wrap up uh, by an observation about a successful collaboration, which Greg and I have had. Uh, and it, it, it begins with mutual respect. Uh, I have an enormous respect for his experience, his insights, and uh, the kind of mental model he brings to it, uh, which is highly complementary to mind. Uh, and uh, then the last piece is uh, we're both, I think, curious about how the other thinks. 
And I said, well, why do you think that? Uh, and that has led to in, in, in many, many productive uh, insights and conversations. And so thank you, McCool, uh, for allowing us to share our journey and our insights. Thank you, George. McCool, that made the entire interview all worth it to me just to hear that. <laughs> so, so thank you, George, and thank you, McCool. Thank you. Thank you both very much. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 